Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechtman. We've talked a lot about homelessness in various aspects over the years on this program. It always tends to revolve around homeless individuals living in the streets of our cities across America. Little attention has been focused on the families that are homeless in America, and we're going to talk about that today with my guest, Richard Swide. He's the author of a new book entitled Invisible Nation, Homeless Families in America, and it is my pleasure to welcome Richard Schweid to the program. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Joe. It's great, it's great to have you here. How big a problem are homeless families in America? Homeless families in America are a large problem and growing. Uh, in 1980, for instance, 1% of the homeless people in the United States were in families. And now that number is at 37%. And... Uh, the problem is, as you pointed out, homeless individuals, chronically homeless individuals, uh, receive the lion's share of attention and funding because they're very visible. Um, you know, they bring down property values uh, and everybody sees them. Whereas homeless families, uh, adults who are experiencing homelessness and have children, generally try to stay out under the radar and out of sight because they're worried that uh, the children's services in whatever state they find themselves will take their children away. Should, the, should it come to their attention that the children are living in a car or an emergency family shelter or in a motel or packed into a house with friends or family uh, way overcrowded? Uh, these are circumstances in which children often get taken away from parents. So we don't often see homeless families. Uh, but their numbers are huge. Uh, there's no other developed country in the world, uh, you know, first world country, uh, where you have these kinds of numbers at all. Mm -hmm. And in Barcelona and Spain, where I live, for instance, it's unthinkable to let your family member uh, be living in a car. It just doesn't happen. And mo are most of them living in cars or, or, or is there shelters or where, where are they living? Where are we finding them? All of the above, uh, the, by far the majority of people experiencing homelessness are living packed into the homes of friends or family. Um, and they fall under the Department of Education's definition of homeless. Um, these are people who, you know, often kids are sleeping on the floor because there's no room. Uh, with people packed in double or triple the amount of people that should be living in a place, uh, it's hard to do your homework, it's hard to concentrate, food is often scarce. Uh, these are people experiencing homelessness. And uh, above and beyond that, uh, emergency shelters, emergency family shelters across the United States are packed. They're all at capacity. And many times in many places, um, people are able to rent a motel room because they don't have enough money to rent a, a, a home and pay the deposit, et cetera, but they may be able to scrape by week to week uh, in a motel room. So a whole family lives in a motel room, uh, you know, spread out among two large beds with a television on the bureau and maybe a microwave, although many motels charge a little extra for a microwave. Uh, so the, uh, that's how families live, and there are many, many of them. And there are also families in every big city or even medium-sized city in the United States today, families are living in their cars, you know. Uh, there's a photo on the cover of my book. It's a very strong photo of a family that's living in its car. I've talked to a number of families who've lived in their cars. 
it's it's very difficult and it's something that absolutely should not be happening in our country. And it doesn't matter, frankly, to me, uh, it seems as if regardless of whether it's Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders uh, running the country or Barack Obama, uh, we shouldn't have. There are now 2.5 million children, a little more than two and a half million children every year who are experiencing homelessness at some time during that year. Uh, and we're the richest country in the world. It should be unacceptable. As this problem has grown, as people have become more aware of it, what has been done, if anything, with respect to social services and public policy to begin to deal with it? Well, that is basically determined by the state in which a family finds itself experiencing homelessness. Um Certainly what's been done in most places is that uh, people have been paid fairly substantial salaries, social workers, municipal workers, uh, to draw up 10-year plans. Uh, Every city in the country that gets any kind of federal funds for homelessness has a point-in-time count every year in January at which they count the number of people who are experiencing homelessness and who are in shelters, which is easy enough to go to and count, or people who they encounter in the street. Uh, people that never get counted in what they call a point-in-time counts are those people who are living doubled and tripled up, or people in motels, or people living out of the way in their cars. But uh, So there's been an attempt to sort of tabulate how many folks there are, and using that information, cities and states get, to get, get you know, f- pay people to, to work with it and uh, draw plans. Sometimes those plans are valuable and possible, and sometimes, uh, you know, it's just a generating paper, really. Uh, there are some places that I found traveling around to write my book. Curiously enough, uh, I found two places on either end of sort of the income spectrum. One of the places I found that was doing a good job of uh, aggressively handling uh, family homelessness and and diverting people from it uh, was um, Fairfax County, which is consistent in the United States, right outside the Beltway, outside Washington, D.C. They have uh, adopted a a very wide-ranging and interesting program to both prevent homelessness for families and to, uh, if a family does become homeless, to rapidly put them into housing. Uh, the other, another place that's uh, doing quite well in that same regard is Mercer County, New Jersey, where uh, the capital of New Jersey, Trenton, is located. Uh, and Trenton is uh, in bad shape. Uh, you're in much more danger there than your average city. A uh, lot of boarded up block after block of boarded up places. Uh, rents are very cheap in Mercer County, but... Uh, as in Fairfax County, municipal, municipal authorities have determined that do what's necessary to reduce and end, uh, you know, children having to experience homelessness in their communities. Oddly enough, Mercer County, where Trenton is located, only nine miles from uh, Trenton is Princeton University, one of the richest universities in the nation and, in fact, in the world, you know, with a $21 billion endowment and uh, – very, very little uh, exchange with Trenton and with Trenton's uh, population of families experiencing homelessness. So, but it's interesting, both those counties are doing a good job, but, you know, the 
It's almost with families, unlike with individuals, it's important to realize that the reason that most families find themselves experiencing homelessness is strictly economic. I mean, folks may, you know, they may have substance use rather than abuse. They may uh, have this, they may have that. But unlike the chronic individuals we see in the street, these folks basically just can't afford housing. And in fact, um, a, a large number of homeless families are headed up by people who have a job, uh, usually a minimum wage job. But in many places in the country, you can work 40 hours of minimum wage on your feet, hard work, no benefits to speak of, no sick days and no child care. You work those 40 hours, you can't pay fair market rent in most cities in the United States. In Boston, for instance, if you are a single mother with two, and many, many, many of these families experiencing homelessness are headed by single mothers. Uh, if you're a single mother with a couple of kids looking for a place to rent in Boston and only want to spend the recommended 30% of your income on rent, uh, you need to be making over $18 an hour. So uh, you can see these, these are the things that have generated uh, what is a true public health crisis, and that is family homelessness. You mentioned a few counties and a few places that are doing things and being proactive about it. Are there things that we can learn from that that could scale on a larger level? There are. Uh, primarily the tool that they have used is something called rapid rehousing, which is where you get, you know, uh, it used to be that when people became homeless, uh, they took them into a transitional housing situation, taught them to handle money, how to do a job interview, this and that, and then housed people. Now the idea is that if people are uh, experiencing homelessness, the best thing to do is to get them into housing as rapidly as possible. And if they are uh, on the edge of falling into homelessness, uh, it needs to be prevented with rent subsidies. Um you know, having said that, the most important thing is affordable housing. Uh, if you don't have affordable housing, you're likely to continue uh, in this country to have families who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, you can get affordable housing in a number of ways. And this year, in in 2008, um, a law, a housing law was passed in Congress, federal law, uh, one component of which uh, mandated that a very tiny fraction of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae loans would be taken each year, pooled, distributed to states to use for affordable housing. It could subsidize landlords. It could build affordable housing. A number of ways to apply it, but uh, it's called the National Housing Trust Fund. It was put off and put off. First, there was the uh, you know the Great Recession, and even though most of the country recovered from that, Republicans staunchly opposed the National Housing Trust Fund. Uh, but this year, 2016, the funds did begin to get distributed. Uh, these kind, there's, In addition to funding from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, there are a number of other plans that have been put forward to finance the National Housing Trust Fund at little or no cost, really, to taxpayers, um, direct costs at any rate. You know, and... So that's, those things are possible, but what's really important is that while the federal government may have to provide the lion's share of funding to address 
all these families experiencing homelessness. Municipalities are those who have to implement programs with those funds, and they have to implement what they call best practice programs. Uh, Studies show that generally I think the best way to end family homelessness is a permanent housing voucher. But, of course, public housing is full to capacity in most places. So perhaps the second most effective is rapid rehousing with a temporary uh, rent subsidy that keeps people housed or allows them to find housing. And once in it, you surround them with ser- social services uh, if they need them and, uh, and, you know, find daycare for them, find whatever it is that they need. And, and, and that way, when the subsidy runs out, oftentimes people will stay housed. Um, those are the things that are possible to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been very little will to do them, unfortunately, uh, over the last many years. And I think we can probably safely predict that there'll be even less will uh, with the new uh, regime in Washington. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the role of the sc- of schools in all of this, because in many ways that's often the, the first way we find out about homeless families. Well, that's true. And in fact, uh, you know, in 1989, they passed the McKinney-Vento law uh, dealing with education and children experiencing homelessness. The law requires that uh, children who are homeless but who wish to remain at their old school have to be transported to that school, uh, regardless of whether they're staying in a motel across town or if they're staying in a car or an emergency shelter. Uh, they can request to continue in their same school. Uh, the Each school district has a person who is responsible for administering McKinney-Vento in their municipality and being a liaison between the school, local school board and families experiencing homelessness. Um, these people, I found at any rate, uh, doing my research and interviewing people, uh, the people at the district uh, type, sorry, the Title Ten administrators are the people who really understand family homelessness in their community, uh, and and they are the best resource for somebody who wants to understand it. Um, that said, school in itself often is it provides you know the only sort of stable element in the life of a, a child who's experiencing homelessness. And, and for instance, school that I first went to to learn about this in Nashville, uh, where the majority of uh, homeless students in Nashville were enrolled uh, because of its location, they kept drawers full of clothes and jackets, blankets, uh, as many schools that have, uh, you know, a sizable amount of number of uh, children that are experiencing homelessness because these kids can come to school and they've lost everything. They've been evicted from a motel room because they didn't pay the weekly rent. And the motel owner has locked the room. And the kids have lost what few clothes they had, maybe their favorite toy, all their school books. Um, this is very common, you know. And, and there are lots of kids that are having to grow up in these circumstances in our country. And it takes some of these kids, you know, they may do okay. I mean, they may be focused and lucky and climb out of uh, poverty. But most of these kids uh, are not ever going to have an opportunity to do so. What they'll have an opportunity to do is to grow into adults who will reproduce uh, another family 
living in that kind of extreme poverty uh, and who will eventually cost us all money in the emergency room and prisons and in general morale of our of our society, you know, of our community. Is there any nexus when we look at the homeless crisis in totality? Is there a nexus in examining the kind of homelessness we talked about at the outset, the individual homelessness, the homelessness of the people that are on the streets that, that we see every day, and, and the issue of family homelessness? Is there a nexus between the two that we need to be aware of? Well, uh if by nexus you mean sort of a point of contact between the two, um, I think not. The real problem is confusing the two. Um, a lot of, a lot more money, time, and attention, I believe, in the past has been paid to chronically homeless individuals than has been paid to families. And for this, I think uh, families experiencing homelessness have had to suffer. Uh, so I think the important thing is to distinguish, is for people to understand uh, that when we're talking about family homelessness, we are talking about children, you know, living in uh, dangerous, unsafe, uh, precarious circumstances, uh, children who will grow up to be, uh, you know, adults here in our society. Whereas chronic homelessness, chronic individual homelessness, it, often it can also be a pro, be sort of uh, ameliorated by rapid rehousing. Many times chronically homeless individuals, their situation is also due to simply economic reasons and uh, the same sorts of things, rental subsidies, affordable housing, uh, these may go a long way toward reducing the numbers of chronically homeless individuals. However, I think it's pretty much two separate populations. You know, if you're homeless as an adult, that's, that's bad. You know, but if you are experiencing homelessness as a parent, uh, it's a whole different set of needs and a whole different set of stresses and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And the same, of course, is true with children who have to feel safe. As we know, a child, the, the most important thing for a child is to feel safe. And when that's not present, it has, it creates, a, physically, it produces what they call stress hormones, which it's now been shown uh, have not only affects on a child's psychological well-being and then adult's psychological well-being, but on the physical well-being of a child and that carry over into their adulthood, the, the stress hormones and the effects of those stress hormones generated by experiencing homelessness. So, I mean, you're really putting, uh, you're affecting both the psychological and physical health of not only kids, but the adults that they will become. Are these homeless families mostly two-parent or one-parent families? They're often one-parent family, uh, one-parent families. They are occasionally two-parent families, but at least in my experience, most of them are one-parent families, and most, although not all, are headed by a female, you know, by a young, single mother. Uh, and uh, many times uh, that mother is a woman who has suffered uh, abuse, verbally or physically, and many times the children in these situations have either witnessed or suffered abuse. Many of these women uh, are suffering from exactly what the veterans suffer from when they come back from battle. They're suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, and uh, really a high number have PTSD. And, you know, so that, I mean, the level of anxiety when you're trying, you know, if you live particularly, if you live in a cold place in the winter when you're trying to raise your children uh, 
uh, you, it, it, it's just very, very difficult. You know, it's terrible. And it doesn't, it's not a political question. It really, I mean, it is in the sense that Democrats are often more likely than Republicans to think about these things and do something about them. But in reality, uh, no one, Republican or Democrat, should be able to support the idea that in their community, uh, children are having to go through this. And in, if we were to look for the perfect public policy prescriptions for this, what should we be doing if we could wave that proverbial magic wand? We should be generating affordable housing. Uh, we should be generating affordable housing, and we should be doing what is necessary to house people in it who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, that, that's what we should do. I, you know, I don't think we can make it like Spain. We can't generate a sense among families that they should look out for their own, although families that are doubled and tripled up, that's exactly what they're doing. And that's what they do here in Spain and in Southern Europe, where they wouldn't let their family members uh, sleep in the streets, but it, they live quite uncomfortably. People packed into small apartments, you know, three generations. If that's what you have to do, that's what you do. And I don't think that we can generate that sense among, you know, people in the United States that they have to deal with their own family members who are experiencing homelessness. But I think that uh, local and state and federal government has to step in and decide that we're not, it's just something that goes beyond the pale. We're not going to tolerate it. It's not, they're not complicated solutions. We need to find affordable housing. We need to build it. We need to mandate that when think, the housing is developed, uh, that a certain amount of it goes to affordable housing, whether in that same building or through some sort of tax on the developer. Uh, it's, you know, it's not a difficult solution to family homelessness at any rate. If there's affordable housing, this uh, would be virtually no family homelessness. That's, that's, how you, that's how you end it. It's not complicated. It's just, you know, I start my book with a quote from Martin Luther King five days before he was assassinated when he was preaching in Memphis, when he said, um, you know, we have now got the tools to end poverty, this kind of poverty. Well, we don't have this the will, and that's what we have to uh, generate. Richard Swide. His book is Invisible Nation, Homeless Families in America. Richard, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you.